You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. So, we are looking at the sacraments. Uh, This is the part of ecclesiology. We looked at the church, the communion of saints. We're going to look at the sacraments in general today. And then uh, next week, I think, I believe it's Pastor Pyland. I don't think it's me, but I think it's him looking at baptism, then the Lord's Supper. So it's kind of going into depth of these things. And so a few preliminary remarks. The doctrine of the sacraments was one about which the Reformers had divergent views. And we might not think that's the case, but it is so. They not only opposed the views of the Roman Catholic Church, which was true, but they differed among themselves, which was hard. Because it was their differences over the sacraments, really, that kept them from providing a united front. I don't know if you remember... It was uh, Luther and Zwingli, they met at the Marburg Colloquy, and there was, I think, 15, I could be wrong on the number, but 15 issues, and Luther and Zwingli agreed on 14 of them. And the one over which they disagreed was the Lord's Supper. And uh, at the end of that, I think Zwingli was in tears, because Luther, you know, Luther was kind of malleable, Um, A compromiser? No, I'm just kidding. He was a tough German and very stubborn. Very stubborn, and he would pound the table and say, he said, this is my body. And Zwingli would say, well, it represents his body. This is my body. And they would not agree, and I think that was one of the reasons, humanly speaking, that the Reformation was weakened. Now, of course, God had his purpose... But it's a very important doctrine. Pastor Pylon, are you next week on baptism? That's what I thought. Okay, yeah, I was right. He's doing baptism. So this is just in general. But the Westminster Confession sets forth clear and succinct statements that navigate between two extremes. I think they do a very good job. On the one hand, what the Confession teaches avoids what we call sacerdotalism. It's a fancy term. There's different ways to define it, but we'll put it this way. It's a religious system in which the priests are essential mediators. In other words, for you to have a relationship with God, there has to be a priest. Not just Jesus, but a priest who mediates. And so the sacraments, then, are utterly important. And they're inseparable from the grace that they signify. There's a phrase, it's called ex opere operato. It's a Latin phrase. It means something like, by the work worked. So that when the sacraments are administered, there's grace. The emphasis is not upon the one who does it or the one who receives it, but the emphasis is upon the objective quality of the sacrament that God gives grace. And it gives rise in some extreme situations to things like baptismal regeneration. You're baptized, you're regenerate. So it's, this, it's an overemphasis on the objective nature of the sacraments. They have grace. That's all there is to it. And that's part of what we call sacerdotalism. Um, 
It's an, it's an overemphasis upon the objective nature of the priesthood and the sacraments which belong to them. On the other hand, the Westminster Confession of Faith avoids what we would call memorialism, which claims that the sacraments are purely symbolic representations, nothing more. It's like a birthday party. You're just kind of remembering, and that's it. And we would say no, as the confession would say. It's more than that. The sacraments become means of grace, that when the Holy Spirit attends the sacrament with his power and makes it effectual, he conveys grace. It's an amazing thing. It's a mysterious thing. So the confession wisely and ably navigates between these two extremes. And the confession and the catechism and the shorter are all um, setting forth this doctrine with equal clarity and fullness. It's, it's an amazing thing how all three parts of the standards uh, give such a full and complete and clear presentation of the sacraments. And the importance of, is seen in the fact that the right administration of the sacraments is a mark of the true church. Whatever else you might disagree on on the marks of the church, all kidding aside, this is a mark of the true church. So if we don't get the sacraments right, the church is not right. Any questions on some of these preliminary comments? Okay. All right. Um, so the mark of a true church, so we would baptize babies. Other churches would baptize adults. Mm-hmm. No, that's a good question. It's not, the right administration of the sacraments is not tied to the recipients. We would disagree with our Baptist brothers that we would baptize covenant children. But the right administration would say it's in the triune name with water. Yeah. It's a good question. Okay. A couple more comments. The word sacrament doesn't appear in Scripture. You won't find it there. It comes from the Latin word sacramentum. And the Romans used this term for the military oath by which a a soldier bound himself to his general. It's a military oath. You're swearing your allegiance. And sacramentum then was a Latin translation of the Greek word mystery. Or something which is unknown until it's revealed. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That word mysteries, the Latins would translate that with the word sacramentum, which, from which we get sacrament. And many believe that Paul's use of the word mystery there had to do with the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because it signifies something which is hidden until it's revealed with the words of institution. So if I don't stand up there and read the words of institution, that snack means nothing. right? Nobody knows what that, well, you know what it is because we do it every week. But somebody coming in would have no idea what we're doing. So we read the words of institution that explains What's going on, and the mystery is revealed. 
And his statement there in 1 Corinthians 4 is one of the reasons why only ordained ministers may administer the sacraments, because we're stewards of these mysteries. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt, but I wondered if I could make an appeal for a helper. We had an illness in the Whitaker family, and Jennifer's taking care of the preschool four and fives, but oh. she could use a helper for oh. those children. Is there someone who would... If, if, if somebody to... wants to help, there's Ernie. Yeah, thank you, Elder Miller. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gretchen. Yes. Thank, thank you, you for serving. Um, so these symbols or rites have hidden spiritual meanings until they're revealed in the words of institution. So the words of institution are very important. We cannot have the sacraments without the word of institution. We're duty-bound. We have to explain what this means. Gerhardus Voss, one of our mutual heroes, um, the sacrament is a word conveyed in an image intended for the eye. I love the way he describes that. It's a visible word. And it's meant to confirm what God has revealed in his word. Which is one of the reasons why the sacrament should never be by itself, ever. It always has to be attended by the preaching of the word, or it should attend the preaching of the word. It confirms what God reveals. And it is explained by the word of institution. So baptism and the Lord's Supper were instituted by Christ. They are acknowledged by all as sacraments. I don't know of anyone who would say that those aren't sacraments. So it's one of those things we all agree on. Roman Catholicism, Protestantism, we all agree these two are sacraments. And so when the, when the divines formed their definition... They pulled together the attributes of these two. What do these two have in common that we can say these are the attributes of a sacrament? And if we find out what's in common, then we can define what a sacrament is. And with those attributes in view, then we can determine whether or not any other ordinance is a sacrament. Foot washing, for example. Some churches practice foot washing. Well, is that a sacrament? And the divines would say, well, does it share the same attributes as the Lord's Supper and baptism, okay? Which we're going to get into now. We're going to go to section one, look at the definition. But any comments or questions on these preliminary ideas? Okay? Okay, so section one. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits, and to confirm our interest in him. So there begins the definition. As signs, this is what a sign does, they signify Christ and his benefits. It's a visible word. Remember what Voss said. So it signifies to us our Savior and the things that he's obtained for us in the covenant. And as seals, they confirm the truth of what they signify. Again, as we've mentioned many times, it's like a, a king's seal when he authorizes it with his signet ring. It authorizes this as true, authentic, real. It is a benefit of the covenant of grace. So there are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Romans 4, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. So there we have, in one verse, these two aspects of the sacrament. It's a sign and a seal. It's as if God is saying 
after the preaching of the word, he's reaching down with his divine hand and he is sealing the congregation. All this is true and it's yours. Uh, I ratify these as your right as children of God. So it's an amazing thing what God does. And I think part of the difference between a Reformed understanding of the sacraments and what we usually find among evangelicals in our country is that the evangelical understanding is largely subjective. It's my expression of faith toward God. That's included, but it's not primary. The Reformed understanding is more objective. It's what God is signifying to us. Which gets into, I'm sure Pastor Pilon will get into Pado baptism next week and answer all your questions. <laughs> but that has a lot to do with it. They're not primarily expressions of faith. They're signs and seals of God's work in Christ. As an express or the express institution of God and in the New Testament, Christ is necessary for an ordinance to be considered a sacrament. So it's got to be instituted by God. Again, foot washing, let's take that for example. It happened, it's clearly in the New Testament, Jesus did it, but he never instituted it as a sacrament, right? Do this in remembrance of me, he said of the Lord's Supper baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28. So, foot washing, while it expresses a wonderful truth, it's not a sacrament. It was not instituted by Christ. Of course, as I said, this serves to exclude from the list most of the seven pretended sacraments of the Roman Catholicism. They have seven sacraments. And because of what the divines have determined, five of those are excluded. And we'll look at those later, I think section three or four. Section one goes on, it should be not 271, but 227.1, as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world, and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ. So they're badges of the covenant. And they distinguish the Christian from the unbelieving world. God wants to distinguish you as his own. That's a privilege. It's a distinct privilege that belongs to the Christian. God wants to set you apart. He loves you. And he wants that to be seen. So it's a badge. And one of the wonderful things about the New Covenant, the New Testament, is that everybody, all Christians, can wear the badge. In the Old Testament... Only the males could have the badge of circumcision. New Testament, all Christians can bear the badge of baptism. I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. Now you're wondering, why did he put that in there? Well, because it shows how God loves to set apart his people and to distinguish them. When this plague of flies came upon Egypt, there were flies everywhere except Goshen. He set them apart and distinguished them. And that's what he does with his people. He distinguishes us from the rest of the unbelieving world. It's one of the reasons why church membership is important, because the sacraments are used only in the church. You want to be identified and distinguished as belonging to God? You're in the church. You're distinguished. You're set apart. Anybody can say, I love Jesus. But God distinguishes you. Rob? Rob? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. It's um, the believers. Okay. Yeah, the church, God's people. Sorry. So sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and the benefits and to confirm our interest in him as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world and solemnly to engage them, those that belong to the church, in the service of God. Yeah. And they serve as exhortations to those who receive them to live holy and exclusively for Jesus. Here comes this idea of sacramentum. It's the military oath. Every time you take the supper, you're swearing your allegiance to Christ. He is your king. And he gives us the opportunity to reaffirm our allegiance to him. You had a bad week. You fell like all of us do. And you're reaffirming. You're renewing the covenantal vow. And that's an important part of the sacrament. Baptism is done once because it admits you into the visible body, not to be repeated. But the Lord's Supper is the ongoing affirmation of your allegiance. It's the sacrament of nourishment. Not the sacrament of initiation, but the sacrament of nourishment. I don't want to get too far into that because I don't want to step on pastor's toes. Any questions on section one? Maria? Do this in remembrance yes, of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Like, oh, this is the indication alone. That, that, is there any other indication in the Old Testament with any of the things that they did that were similar? Or? Well, it's a good question. They, uh, there are definitely parallels because circumcision is paralleled with baptism. They're both initiatory rites, both initiatory sacraments, we would say. And then the Lord's Supper, obviously, was drawn out of the Passover. So Jesus met with his disciples and he uh, reinterpreted for them the Passover. He is the Passover lamb. So yes, absolutely parallels there. So is that where theologians are kind of putting this? Like, are they, like, all those things being put together in terms of what are the sacraments? Mm-hmm. Foot washing isn't part, you know, they're using the Old Testament to kind of... Yes, yeah, so using the Old Testament, definitely there's some parallels, but they're looking primarily at the new and seeing baptism and the Lord's Supper because I don't think, as we said, I don't think anybody would disagree that these two are not sacraments. There is this sacramental... Uh, nature to them that Christ clearly instituted them, right? Um, baptism is the initiatory rite. So Matthew 28, you make disciples by doing two things. You baptize them, you bring them into the community, and then you teach them to observe all that I commanded you. So those two things, so it is the initiatory rite, and we understand that. And then the Lord's Supper, he did institute that as this ongoing, as often as you do this, You proclaim the Lord's death, right? That's what Paul says. So we understand these two things are sacraments. So if that's the case, if nobody disagrees with that, let's figure out what these have in common. And then we can apply that as a standard for anything else. And nothing else meets it. You know, marriage doesn't meet it. That's a creation ordinance. 
Unbelievers are to get married. You know, God brings together all marriages. So that's not a sacrament of the church to convey grace. That's a common grace institution. Yeah. Sacramental union, kind of a fancy phrase. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. Well, what does that mean? Well, as we know, a sacrament consists of an outward and sensible sign, whether it's water or whether it's the bread and the cup. These are outward, sensible signs that we can touch, feel, see, taste. And a sacrament also consists of an inward spiritual grace that's signified. So these signs are not in and of themselves. They point to something, which is an inward spiritual grace. In baptism, for example, sprinkled water in the triune name signifies spiritual cleansing and the indwelling spirit, primarily. It signifies a lot more, but primarily. In the Lord's Supper, the visible elements represent Christ crucified and all the benefits obtained by his death, forgiveness of sins. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. So it's a visible representation of Christ and the forgiveness that we enjoy in him. Again, Voss, because by the institution of Christ, the sign and the things signified have come into a certain relationship to each other. What belongs to the one can be attributed to the other. Scripture is very comfortable exchanging those two things. Um, let me give an example. I think it's in Acts 9. I'm, I'm forgetting the exact address. But when Ananias, I think I'm right in this, he says, Paul, rise and be baptized that your sins may be washed away. Now, of course, by being baptized, that's not going to wash away sins, as Peter tells us. But the idea is, because of this sacramental union, because of the relationship between the sign and the thing signified, uh, Ananias was comfortable saying, be baptized, that signifies forgiveness, be baptized for the washing of your sins away. So there's this idea of sacramental union. Roman Catholic Lutherans equate the sign and the thing signified. So the Roman Catholics would materialize grace. The bread is his body. It equates the sign with the thing signified. The, the wine is his blood. That's why the priest has to drink it all. That's why alcoholism is so rampant in the Roman Catholic Church. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's wine. The, the Lutherans localize it. Okay, Christ's body, it's not Christ's body, but his body is with, by, under it, consubstantiation. So the Catholicism materializes grace, Lutherans localize grace, and we would say, no, neither one of those is right. When the Bible says, or Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body, this is my blood of the covenant, they err by understanding him to mean that it's literally my body and this cup is my blood, but we think he means they represent his body and blood. Just like elsewhere, he says, I am the door. Okay, he doesn't mean he's a door, but there is a huge representation going on there, right? 
So we would understand that Scripture is comfortable using that kind of language. And the sacramental union idea helps us understand and interpret scriptural language. This is my body. In other words, this represents my body, which is given for you. I die in your place. And this sign is to signify that, and it seals it to you as a believer. It's an incredible thing. Any, we're going to continue on this, but any questions so far on sacramental union? Mark? You said baptism sprinkled water and trying to gain. Uh, it seems by this uh, cleansing and all the spirit. Are you saying that when you get baptized, that's when the Holy Spirit enters? It signifies that. So, for instance, you're converted, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you get baptized. That's not, when you're baptized, that's not when the Spirit filled your heart. But it signifies the fact that, yes, you've been filled by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Yeah, but what about, like, infants getting baptized? Infants? It can signify the same thing. Now, what we'll find, and Pastor Pylon will cover this, is that the efficacy of the sacrament is not tied to the moment of administration. So Michael's baptized as an infant. He turns 20. He believes in Christ. That baptism signified what happened to him at age 20. Do you see? So the efficacy, it was a means of grace, but it's not tied to that moment of administration. It's sort of like that example where the old farmer in Vermont, he had heard a sermon as a boy in England. 70, 80 years later, he remembers the sermon and he's converted. The Spirit uses it. Well, the efficacy of that word was not tied to the moment of hearing, but it was used 80 years later. The efficacy of the baptism was not tied to the moment of administration, but it was used 20 years later. You know, so it signifies the same thing. It seals the same thing. It's God's seal. Was Michael's baptism effectual? Of course. 20 years later. Just like, just like discipline. The guy at Faith Presbyterian uh, was excommunicated. And 15 years later, he was diagnosed with a terminal illness. First thing he thinks about, i got to get right with the Lord and his church. Goes back to faith, repents, they restore him, and he dies. So discipline was effectual, right? But it took 15 years. So God's timing is not always the same thing as our timing. And these things are not tied so closely as we would like them to the moment of administration. But it's also not a guarantee that that infinite right. will accept, right? So in that situation, is it right to say that that sacrament was not effectual? Right. It's a curse. It's a blessing. Or it can be a curse. He's doubly cursed. He's cursed in Adam. And he's cursed because he didn't own the obligations of his baptism. So with great privilege comes tremendous responsibility, right? We say the same thing as citizens. You're born as a U.S. citizen, great privilege, huge responsibility. You grow up and you don't fulfill your citizens' obligations, like you... you uh, commit treason, <laughs> uh, that's a huge responsibility, right? You're executed. You, a foreigner can come into this country and do something 
and you can do something, and you'll be punished far more severely because you're a citizen. Yeah, so, yeah, it wasn't made effectual for, in that case. So on the sacramental union, there is in every sacrament this, this union. It's symbolical and it's representative. By God's appointment, the sacrament rightly used is an instrument through which grace is conveyed by the Holy Spirit. Key. The Spirit is sovereign. We could be accused of sacerdotalism if we would just take that statement. But the sacrament rightly used, and I should probably add understood, that the Holy Spirit makes it effectual, grace is conveyed. So we depend upon the Holy Spirit. Whereas I think the sacerdotalist would say, we depend upon the church. It's the church rightly administering the sacrament, that's grace. Right? Whereas the Reformed understanding would say, no, we depend on the sovereign Holy Spirit who blows where he wills, when he wills. He's sovereign. You can't control him. So from the sacramental union arises certain expressions that exchange the sign and things signified. Sometimes the name of the sign is given to the thing signified. Christ, our Passover lamb, Brianna, has been sacrificed. Sometimes the name of the thing signified is given to the sign. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. This is my covenant. Well, we understand it as a sign of the covenant. But Scripture is comfortable saying, this is my covenant because of the sacramental union. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. There you go. Be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Well, baptism doesn't wash anybody from their sins. But the sacramental union signifies, or means that they can signify it. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. What? Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is comfortable saying, baptism saves you. No evangelical would be comfortable with that, right? Until he explains it. The sacramental union allows scripture to use this kind of language. Um, any comments or questions on sacrament? Sandra and then Rob? Right. I think part of the confusion, and I understand your confusion because many of us do get confused. Part of the confusion is interpreting the word appeal. We think of the word appeal subjectively. It's my appeal to God. But if you think of an appeal objectively, that this sacrament points to God for my good conscience. I depend on God in Christ for a good conscience. And that's what this sacrament signifies, right? It's the appeal. It, it, it points to God. It refers to God in Christ. So I think that helps to understand what he's getting at there. Because you're right. If we baptize the baby, the baby's not, baby's not appealing to anybody. Something's happening to him. He's passive. Sovereign grace, the grace which is exhibited in and by the sacraments, rightly used, is not conferred by any power in them. It's not sacerdotal. Neither does the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that does administer it. I could be a profligate. It doesn't matter what my intention is as the minister. But upon the work of the Spirit, 
And the word of institution, which contains, together with the precept authorizing the use thereof, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. So there we have this dependence upon the Holy Spirit. He's sovereign. It refutes sacerdotalism. They claim that the saving grace is contained in the sacraments and conveyed by their administration. Those who administer must have the right intention. The priest better be on on target. And the recipient better have a right disposition. No, it depends upon the Holy Spirit. Because sacerdotal approach, divine grace is contained in the sacraments and dependent upon the frailties of humans. Right? If it depends upon the person who administers it and the person who receives it, it's depending upon a frail human being. This is God's oath. This is God's mark. The biblical view is that God the Spirit works when, where, and how He will in conferring grace. We cannot manipulate Him. We cannot force His hand. He does as He sees fit. Rob, I, I, missed, I skipped you. I'm sorry. No, the first Peter, it's when you use the baptism there, it's the fact that what you're saying about that uh, initiatory aspect of baptism. So it seems like His initial audience would be very obvious that they were called out of the world and joined to the church and in that being baptized. You know what I'm saying? So it's different from like, oh, there's baptism on the bulletin. It's like a thing. It's like, it seems like baptism as used in First Peter was way more, I don't know, you know, like it's inseparably, it's like church membership being called out of the world, being baptized physically and literally were all kind of like Very significant. Yeah, Peter is using that in a very significant way. And you're right, in that context, in that culture, it was very vivid, visual. And, um, you know, in our culture, baptism, it's important, but it's really not given much credence. But in a culture like that, or even today, if a Muslim is baptized, that is a watershed event. That's the moment that he's cut off, or his head's cut off, one or the other, you know. Because they understand that that initiatory sacrament, that, that's the Rubicon, beyond which there's no returning, right? Once you're baptized, you're in. You're identified with Christ. So, but, spi- oh, Manny? Well, yeah, please, please. Um, referring to this, um, there's some, I don't know how many, but there's some, Presbyterian churches would hold valid baptism than the Catholic Church. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. What would be your comments about that? Because I know that you don't. Right. Believe that. Yeah, the question is um, some Presbyterian churches would, would welcome the Roman Catholic baptism as valid, and we don't. The PCA leaves it up to each individual session to determine. And the reason we don't largely is because we believe the keys of the kingdom, one of which is baptism, is entrusted to a true church. And we don't believe the Roman Catholic Church is a true church. They don't preach justification by faith. The word and sacrament are not administered rightly or preached faithfully, so they can't be a true church, the marks of the church, right? Um, So we would say, well... If the, if, the, if the church is not true, they don't have the authority to wield the keys of the kingdom. Um, it's sort of like Jehovah's Witnesses. I believe they do baptize in the triune name. 
Nobody here would say that that's a valid baptism. Why? Well, it's a cult, right? They have no authority. I could baptize somebody in my bathtub. Well, that's not right. I've, I don't have that authority, right? So it's, it's the true church that can baptize. So we have determined, at least at this church, that we would not accept it because the true church doesn't have, or the false church doesn't have authority to wield the kingdom or the keys. The reason they do accept it, though, is based on this in particular approach, the efficacy of baptism does not depend on, like it says here, the sacraments itself, nor on the piety of intention of people and ministers. Right? Yeah, some would interpret it that way. So they would say, because it is a triune church that we deviate from the heresy that the origin of baptism is true. Yeah. They will take that based on this. I think you're right. I think they would, they would interpret the piety or intention of him that administers it as the church. And I would interpret the divines as saying there, well, it doesn't matter if the minister is a true believer or not. He's lawfully ordained in a true church, but because the guy's a cad doesn't mean your baptism is illegitimate, right? Within a true church. Within a true church, right? But if you are in a false church. In a false church in which salvation is not Right. Um, even if the the sacraments are true, I mean, they're true. They are genuine, I guess, correct. Right. And the priest has good intentions. <coughs> the person has a righteous position, is right to get close to God. And it is done in the guise of the Bible. Right. Then you will still don't think that it's efficacious just because the salvation that is preached by church. Yeah, because we have to understand who, who wields the keys of the kingdom. If Rob takes his son out to his bathtub, he's sincere, triune name, it's water. Well, Rob doesn't have that authority, right? That's, that's not a baptism. We would say that's not a baptism. He's a good Christian man, you know. So same thing, same principle. That's because it's the, the priests in that are not... Doesn't have authority. Right. Doesn't have the authority. You are not, you don't have the authority to do that, right? So that's what we would say, at least here, up to now. Um, so the biblical view is the Spirit. We believe the sacraments are made effectual. They convey grace by the Spirit's power and by His sovereign activity. So divine grace depends not on humans, but upon the blessing of Christ, who instituted it, and the power of His Holy Spirit. We depend on him for everything, right? We do our best to be faithful in administering them because that's what he teaches us in his word. We are to be faithful, and then we trust him to do the work. We plant and water, but he gives the growth. Always he. It's always him. Jesus appointed them for this, and his spirit uses them accordingly. He shows us the things of Christ, and we're thankful for that. <clears throat> there are only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel, that is to say, baptism and the Lord's Supper of the Lord, or the Supper of the Lord, neither of which may be dispensed by any, but by a minister of the word lawfully ordained. Right? We would not say the Roman Catholic ordination is lawful. John? Um, I was just thinking about two other commands that Jesus gave that are distinct from the New Testament, the washing of feet and the evangelization of the world. You cannot 
there are only echoes of that in the Old Testament, washing of feet, meaning, uh, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then new commandments to increasing the amount of love we show, the, the amount of giving we show to other Christians. Um, those are not, so they don't, they don't have analogies in the Old Testament. They're not tied to salvation, our, our own salvation, and they are commands that we're expected to follow. But it kind of makes sense that they're not sacraments, they're not instruments of our salvation that we should be repeating in a specific way. They're things we should do, but not necessarily sacraments. Right. Right. They don't, they don't meet the requirements that are set forth for a sacrament. They weren't instituted by Christ for this purpose. So you're right. We learn a lot from the fact that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. It's a huge lesson that we all should take to heart. We need to be humble. We need to serve one another. We need to love each other. And Jesus is our perfect example. But it's not a sacrament. It doesn't convey grace by the power of the Holy Spirit. Or the evangelization of the world. That's not sacramental. That's a duty. That's an evangelical duty. So yeah, you're right. Exactly. In contrast to Rome, which posits seven sacraments, we affirm two. The seven they posit are baptism, confirmation, the supper, penance, extreme unction, orders, and marriage. Neither penance, confirmation, nor extreme unction have a divine institution which is required. They weren't instituted for this purpose. Neither orders nor marriage instituted by God at creation have a visible sign to signify the benefits of salvation. Um, Sue? What is extreme unction? uh, My understanding is that when you're close to death, the priest comes and blesses you. Somebody can inform me more clearly on extreme unction, but that's how I understand it. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Um, Penance, obviously, orders, you know, ordination and so forth, marriage, confirmation at the early part. So these things were not instituted for that purpose. Only baptism and the Lord's Supper share the characteristics mentioned earlier in section 1. No one may administer them who has not been lawfully ordained to the Christian ministry. And I think that's largely because Jesus says in Matthew 16, uh, to you... The keys of the kingdom will be entrusted. The church, who represents the church? It's the lawfully ordained officers of Christ. So the church is the one who has the authority to wield the keys of the kingdom. The word and the sacrament. It lets in, it keeps out. So when you excommunicate somebody, they're barred from the table. They're kept out. We want them to come and hear the word for the salvation of their souls, but they're set apart as being outside the body of Christ. Keys of the kingdom, as I just said, I'm constantly stealing my own thunder. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Christian ministers and no others are to be considered as stewards of the mysteries of God. And then finally, old, oh, Manny? Could you elaborate You've said both things. I think there might be both ways based on understanding which the keys of the kingdoms are held by the ministry of the word that is lawfully ordained, and then the keys of the kingdom are held by the church. Um, but you wouldn't say that anybody who's a church member has the authority to baptize or, right. or uh, minister the sacraments. Right. So can you make it 
build a liberation of wise ministers who holds that key and not a member of the lawful church. Yeah, because he's a lawfully ordained officer of Christ. He represents Christ. And the power is really lodged in the session. And he has the added responsibility to administer. So it, it, it identifies this idea that Christ has entrusted this to his visible church on earth. She is the agent to proclaim the word of salvation and to confirm it by God's oath. Nobody else has that authority. I don't have that authority as an individual. I have that authority as a minister of the gospel, right? And I can only do this in the context of the gathered worship community. So I couldn't do it in my bathtub. Um, Unless the church, unless we had the session present, which is the bare bones representation of the church. But he's giving it to the church. If you look at Matthew 16 and 18, he's talking, he gives it, he talks to Peter first, and then he talks to the whole group of disciples in Matthew 18. Whatever you all bind, whatever you all loose. <clears throat> so it's this idea of the church functioning uh, as his agent on earth. I think it's important, I think in our day and age, again, a lot of this ecclesiology is just not understood and not appreciated, that, hey, we're all believers, whatever, you know, anything goes. And I think it's important because let all things be done decently and in order. It's important to acknowledge, I'm sorry, Greg? Yeah, just long as I think it's, it's a useful concept because a lot of evangelical maybe come to mind, so just thinking like, I make myself into the church just because I personally believe, so I like set my own criteria. Right. I'm, you know, I'm a believer. Or we may be this other person I trust, and they say I'm a believer because they seem to be like a more mature Christian. So you keep working that way back. But really what we're saying is we want the, the church as represented by Christ's session to sort of, that when that speaks, that's, that's the word of, yes, you're in the church. We're conferring this to you in a more formal sense than just my personal thought or my buddy's thought. Exactly, yeah, because Jesus is a king. He has a visible kingdom on earth that's expressed in his church under his word. And we're all under the authority of his word. Um, another Roman Catholicism would say, no, the church and the word are kind of on equal par. But we're under his word and we're under shepherds administering his truth and his sacraments. I have to stop. The Old Testament sacraments <clears throat> were good enough for them and they're good enough for us. Section 5. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.